Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who, lie, who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in, the right, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing, ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Thank you, Chelsea. Well, guys, we're going to begin in chapter 19. And Ian ended uh, last week with that incredible interaction uh, between, uh, between Abram and the angel of the Lord. And, you know, the, one of the things I love about that is a theme that, um, that continually arises is God's uh, invitation for his people to enter into the heavenly council. Uh, that, that I think it, it gives us incredible insight into even prayer um, that God is inviting us to commune with him, to make requests of him. Uh, that he's allowing us to interact and to participate in his plans and purposes. And I think that's a really profound thing. And there's much debate around if, if Abraham would have continued to whittle down the numbers, uh, would, God have continued, uh, would God have continued to say yes? Um, and I, I don't know the answer. All I know is the story is what the story is. Um, I think the, the profound aspect is, is that Abraham was invited into, into conversation with God um, and was allowed the ability to actually, um, uh, he, was, he was invited into the decision-making even, which is a profound thing that's hard for me to get my head around. Um, but it, it tells me that we should not take prayer lightly, uh, if, if, if anything, for us as modern people, um, that our prayers matter. So the warnings come. And now the angels um, are being sent by God to, uh, to uh, enter into the city of Sodom um, and to observe uh, its wickedness um, in preparation for its uh, complete destruction. Uh, and it's an, intense, it's an intense passage. It says in chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Um, by the way, the, sitting in the, in the gate of Sodom um, is, um, is language that probably is pointing us to the idea that Lot was actually 
um, a member of city council, that he was a person that was, that, um, was involved in, in the judicial aspects of the city. Uh, and it's language that's used uh, in the Proverbs, uh, it's language that's used in the Psalms, and so it, this speaks of a position of authority um, in the city. And this also speaks, already is pointing us to um, the challenges of Lot's mixture. Uh, that he is definitely a man of compromise, and the and the and the, narrat uh, the narrative is continually hinting at that throughout this text. Um, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, "My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way." And they said, "No." we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. By the way, that language of they pressed him strongly is the exact same Hebrew term that's used to describe the men that are going to come and try to draw them out for, um, for the purpose of raping them. Uh, so there's a play, there's a play on words here. Uh, and, it, I, and if any, I, I think that there's even the possibility that it's hinting at a particular, an aggressiveness of temperament within this, within this community. Uh, that the nature of, um, of sin being like leaven that permeates uh, and we do become like who we hang out with. I think that's an important theme that is, um, that is worth remembering. But before they lay down, Oh, so it says, but he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Uh, and the, in the Hebrew, the text is basically saying that basically men from, of all types, young and old, uh, they are surrounded, and they, there's a repetition of language to make sure that you understand that this is a mob <laughs> that has gathered. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? So the angels appeared as men. Uh, bring them out to us that we may know them. Uh, the NET just straight up translates it as so that we might have sex with them. Uh, to know is a Jewish idiom. It is clear in the context of this uh, in the fact that Lot's appeal is don't do this evil thing. So any attempts to try to say that this is not about uh, sexual immorality, this particular moment. Now, the, there's lots of debate around what ultimately brought the destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and as Ian pointed out, that there is a condemnation on Sodom for its pride. Um, but let's just remember that pride is the root of all kinds of sin and sexual immorality and, and, it, and the wickedness um, and, and we don't have to diminish that aspect of it. I think that pride is a, a very all-encompassing. Um, it's, it's interesting that it's a sin that often goes unchecked in the church um, and yet we're told that, it's, that it was one of the chief reasons that destruction came on the city. So we should, be, we should, we should uh, never um, take lightly the issues of pride, especially when it's seen in the church, especially when it's seen among church leaders. Um, and uh, something that we have to constantly keep in check um, because humility is necessary if we want to see God. <laughs> uh, so here, so it, it is an incredibly proud and arrogant thing to think that you can just demand to have 
sex with whoever you want to have sex with. Uh, and, and it's evil. And so they said, where are the men who come, come to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them or that we may have sex with them. And Lon went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And here is just Lot at his fine, what a good dad. Um, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any men, they're virgins. Let me bring them out to you um, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. You're not even one of us. Don't try to pretend like we're your brother. Um, and it's, it's so fascinating because this all happens so fast that we're not even, it's, it's easy to just read through this and not take into consideration how insane um, Lot's response is. Uh, by the way, this, this exact scenario, something very similar to this um, happens in Judges where a man basically puts his daughter out. Um, uh, and, I mean, I just think that the, the perpetuation of evil, the themes that continue to repeat themselves is a fascinating thing. Um, but what goes, what, what happens here? Stand back and they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, that is the angels, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out groping for the door. I, I, I love that imagery of blindness because that becomes an imagery of what sin does uh, in, uh, in scripture. It, it becomes something that it takes on deeper meaning than just the supernatural act of physical blindness. But that, what does it say in John 1 when the light of the world came, came in? that men preferred the darkness. And that they, that I always say that it doesn't matter how much light there is if you're blind. Um, we need supernatural vision. Uh, and this is, the, being struck with blindness is also a picture of, this is exactly what sin, uh, sin uh, produces sin. The exceeding sinfulness of sin is that it, it, it populates, it, it corrupts, um, and it consumes the whole person until one is blind. Uh, to the reality of what they have become. And so the physical blindness that they are experiencing is a picture of the blackness of their hearts um, in this moment. And then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. So once again, God's mercy is at play. They didn't say not just this household, but if you have anyone in the city <laughs> that, um, that, that you care about, um, we are giving you the opportunity to get them and to get them out. He goes, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. I want you to take note of that. The outcry um, of the evil of this place um, has made its way to the Lord. That, um, what is the language that's used of the children of Israel when they're enslaved? And God heard what? their cry. So there is, there is great evil that's being done and the, the cries of those who have been impacted, the, the shedding of blood of the innocents, the, the corrupt, the, 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 the hurting of, of other humans, that the atrocities, the, the, it must have been great. 
It must have been more than just sexual immorality. I don't believe that this is, this is uh, primarily a judgment upon a city because of homosexuality. Um, I think homosexuality along with, with violence and pride and all, all forms of sexual immorality is at play here. Um, the question isn't what exact sin brought the destruction. The, the exact sin is that these are, this was a community that was turned fully against God um, and they had, they had become the definers of right and wrong in their own eyes. And this is a reminder that sin will be judged. Um, and the severity of this moment, um, I think, is one of those, those warnings that actually speaks to even a future reality in which there will be a day in which God will put right what is wrong and there will be a final judgment before creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And so uh, if this creates a little unease, I think the story is supposed to. <laughs> I don't think we should be very comfortable with it. I think that we should recognize that what these people are doing, we all have the capacity and the capability of entering into the same kind of depravity. And if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, we would all be in the position that Sodom and Gomorrah is in. What do we have here? So Lot went out and said to his son-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, they didn't listen to him. The angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters. By the way, what is that pointing us back to? Have we not already seen that theme of warning and then the warning not being taken seriously? Um, the people that mocked Noah during the building of the ark, um, it's the same calloused spiritual blindness um, that, that is not, not understanding the, the very danger that they have put themselves in due to evil. This morning dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two, and I think that he lingered is an important statement that shows that Lot is far more connected um, to this place uh, than he ought to be. And this is part of the problem of, this, of the narrative and the weakness of his own character. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley, escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved, he said to, said to him. Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. So there is even an adjustment. God meets Lot in his weakness and says, you can do that. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. So once again, we see um, uh, it, the ability, even for someone like Lot, to, there's a negotiation, if you will, a request. Uh, I don't think I have the physical strength to make it out of the city. I mean, all, 
to the to the hills can we can we go to the city and there is an adjustment in what was initially commanded and, and I think that's an interesting thing that is worth noting um, of uh, God in his sovereignty allowing human beings to participate in his plans I, it's just a fascinating thing to me the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So this is an interesting one because it seems like a severe judgment, but um, it's because we don't understand the Hebrew uh, that, is, that is there. But that looked back in the Hebrew is more than just like I looked over my shoulder to see what was happening. Uh, this was a longing gaze. It was, it was, I'm looking back at the place where this, that's where my heart really is. Um, and so she experiences, she's, her connection to that city was greater than her connection to the Lord. And she experiences the same reduction, if you will. Um, and that is why every time you eat salt to this day, you're eating Lot's wife. I was just seeing if you're listening. I just made that up. I thought it was kind of good though, really. You're like, ooh, distasteful. Well, she became salt. That's all I know. She shouldn't have looked. She looked. Uh, <laughs> I'd like someone just like, uh. <laughs> they, I, and I think that this is a, an interesting thing too of, of just the, the heart is something that Jesus constantly challenges. It's more than just what we do, but it's what we set our hearts upon. Um, and there is a longing for something that, um, that reveals what her, where her heart really is. Um, and I think that this is why Jesus, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, um, he takes us beyond the actions to the heart of the matter, that the heart is, uh, the, heart is, is, the, is the problem. <laughs> uh, and this is why we are told that we need to be born again, that we need a new heart. Uh, and I think that this, um, and this also speaks to the dangers, um, the challenges of being in the world, but not of it, um, and how to navigate that. Uh, because uh, she had become, and I think that this is something we need to recognize and not be foolish enough to think that we are not ourselves uh, deeply connected um, and um, uh, not only connected to, but often dependent upon things that are in opposition to God. Uh, our own, our own, um, the, our own uh, love and acceptance of the world in which we live um, and the things in which we participate. I often am, am challenged when I read a story like this of that the world is not, uh, if God, uh, if God was to judge severely every time someone's heart wandered, there would not be a, any person or any place that would survive it. Um, that, that God functions, the, the scales tip toward mercy. Um, but I think that this story should be an incredible warning um, uh, for our own comfort um, when it comes to our um, satisfaction with the things of this world. And. Uh, and I, I get deeply convicted by this because I, I love pop culture, I, I love film, 
I've, I've, I know I watch plenty of things I probably ought not to. Um, I have a deep love of, of music, and I tend to like very little music made by Christians. Uh, I, and I recognize the influence um, of, these, of these voices, and they're real. Um, and the question is, is if I was given the, if I was given the, the opportunity to escape something, would I have the longing gaze um, like Lot's wife? And, and it's troubling to admit that there are many things that, I, that would be hard for me to give up. And I think that one of the things that's powerful about the Christian life um, and why I think things like fasting is really a powerful discipline is because some of those spiritual disciplines are there to help us um, free ourselves from the tyranny of things and the tyranny of our love of the things of this world. So when we don't eat um, so that we can spend time with God, what we're doing is we, we're, showing, uh, we're showing ourselves even that we do have the power to say no to the flesh. Um, and so I think it's, a, it's an important, uh, it, it's easy to read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and say, man, I'm glad I'm not like those people. I, I, I would not, I, I would be very careful to, um, to say that we're, we're all that different. Um, and I think that, that even Jesus said, uh, I tell you this, I think Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment would be less than this generation. Um, so, I, and because of their what? Their unbelief, their refusal to believe when they knew that there was something about Jesus that should not have been denied or ignored. Um, and I think of all the ways that, um, that I, like Lot, can become compromised um, by my love of the place in which I live or my love of the world in which I live. Um, and I think that, that we have to constantly um, surrender uh, ourselves to Jesus and allow ourselves to come under that the examining eye of God um, and allow him to purify us by his spirit. Uh, so, what happens? And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Um, Lot's salvation uh, was in large part due to God remembering Abraham and Abraham's intervention. Now Lot went up to Zor, let's go into another disturbing story, uh, and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man on earth um, in, to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine. It's insinuating that they got him drunk. Um, and, I, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father, um, he didn't just drink wine because he would remember that he slept with his daughter, but he had to have drank a lot of wine to not remember that he had slept with his daughter. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Um, now, I, I want to just point out, I, this is the second narrative that deals with alcohol. So far, there are scriptures that speak positively of alcohol. Um, 
but I just want to be really clear that so far, it's kind of like two marks against. Like it's, it's not, not looking good so far. Like this is not, and this is one of those unique things in scripture that both has negative and positive connotations. Um, but the one thing that, all, let me be really clear because we live in a culture where over drinking has become normal in the church. Um, and I've seen it become normal among pastors. Um, and I saw it in my own life. And, and it is a thing that I think is, I don't think that there, um, uh, teetoler is a, a, the necessary uh, requirement, but I think that great caution with alcohol is necessary because alcohol is an amazing escape from the anxieties of life, but it has diminishing returns. Um, and watching my own father die of lifelong alcoholism is not a fun thing. Uh, it's, an, it's an ugly way to kill yourself. Uh, and I think that more importantly, the one thing that, this, that the text shows is that over-drinking leads to behavior that is regrettable. <laughs> it's like, there's, I mean, there's no getting around it. What, whether it's looseness of tongue, saying things that you don't remember, uh, doing things. I mean, the, the terrifying thing of, of, I mean, I've met many people who have talked about drinking so much that, I mean, it's a real thing for people to wake up in someone's apartment and they don't know how they got there. Um, that's, not a, that's not like some far-fetched idea. I, I have talked with someone recently that that happened to. Uh, so, I mean, I think that if you are a person who drinks, I think what you need to remember in Scripture is that the prohibition is not on drinking, but it is on drunkenness. And, um, you know, I, I think that th that's one of those things where it's, a, it's something that we need to be aware of and we need to be careful um, and, and I always say one of the signs that drinking is becoming a problem in your life, and let me just be clear about this, I think one of the signs where drinking is a problem is when drinking is primarily an, an isolated act. Um, I think drinking alone is, is generally like a danger sign. I'm not saying it's always a danger sign, but I think if your primary drinking is you by yourself, uh, I think it's something that is worth taking to the Lord. Um, because, because I think that these stories are here to remind us, like, these lead to things that we don't, we don't want. And I think that, that alcohol, bec I'm grateful that, um, w that we don't, we're not falling into the trappings of severe legalism and putting boundaries on people that shouldn't be there. But sometimes people wish, like, I just wish you would tell me I can't do it. Why do you have to leave it in this gray zone, you know? Uh, and, and I think that that's part of how we grow in faith is that is learning how to how to function in a way that that doesn't violate um violate what it means for us to be followers of jesus and to live in a way that actually that would harm our relationships with others um and the consequences so far noah's and what was the outcome of noah's drunkenness it also was um exposure and nakedness um, and so it's interesting that there's these connections to these stories. What happens? So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then go in and lie with him and that we may preserve the offspring from our, from our father. Their intention is to preserve offspring, but what are they doing? They are mimicking the behavior of Sodom. They are 
they are actually taking a sexual advantage of their father while he's passed out on alcohol, which is insane. There is a repetition. They are forcing themselves upon their own father. They are living out. And this shows the compromise of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually infiltrated the whole family. Lot's wife looks back longingly upon the place that is about to be destroyed. Lot's daughters reenact the very thing that the men of the city did, um, tried to, uh, to do to the angels. Um, and, and even though it is never a wrong desire to want children, that is not the wrong desire. That's not the issue with the story. The issue of sin is generally wanting things that are good things in the wrong, at the wrong time in the wrong way. Um, and so they achieve something that God wants for them by mimicking the evils of the world rather than trusting in God for provision, which is a theme that is going to be taken up as the story continues. So. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father, let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And I think that, it, that the reason that both of these, um, these names are given um, is that they become, uh, they become the uh, offspring that brings about a, a great challenge to Israel. They become enemies of Israel. Um, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Um, but as was pointed out to me, God's still in his provision and his ability to override, override evil with good uh, that we do need to remember um, that, um, that good comes out of this line as well. Who came from the Moabites? Ruth. Ruth. Um, and so I think this is one of those beautiful things of God's ability He's not responsible for the evil that happens in the world, but he does have an incredible ability to override it and bring about good out of it. And so that is a, that is a beautiful and powerful thing. Chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the ter territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Uh, I think this has already happened once. Uh, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a, in a dream by night and said to him, I love this. Behold, you're a dead man <laughs> because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Notice, from sinning against me. That is, that's an interesting, an interesting statement. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Once again, there is a 
conversation and interaction, um, there's a, there is a request brought before God, and God says, I know that you're innocent. And I actually am the one that protected you from, um, from acting upon uh, your own naivete. Um, but it's so fascinating that God doesn't condemn Abraham in this, in, uh, in this thing. In fact, he says, Abraham's a prophet and he will restore you. Um, but I'm sure that the, the check is in place because there is an embarrassment that Abraham has to deal with. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants had told them and told them all these things and the men were very much afraid then abimelech called abraham and said to him what have you done to us and how have i sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin you have done to me things that ought not to be done and abimelech said to abraham what did you see that you did this thing abraham said i did it because i thought there is no fear of god at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And we don't know if he was struck with impotence or what, but we do know that all the, all the women um, had God had closed their wombs and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife so God God's intervention um, and then ultimately the very provision of land for I mean it shows the favor of God upon Abraham that even even something as foolish as lying about Sarah um, he still is is being blessed. God has chosen him as a vessel, not because he's perfect, but because God has chosen him. Uh, and I think that that is, um, that's one of those things that helps us uh, understand um, God, God's willingness to utilize uh, broken, messy mixture of people like you and I uh, to accomplish his work. The Lord visited Sarah and had said, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. By the way, the Lord visiting Sarah, that word visit in the Hebrew. Would you like to call Alice Mobile? No, I don't want to call anyone, Siri. You're so weird. Our phones listen to us. I've, I've just read a book on AI and I'm very disturbed. I like literally just started having the phone show me things in my feet. I, just, I was talking about it. I didn't even look at, look it up. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to get all these pictures of T-shirts that have um, illustrations hand-painted on them because I saw one in California. That's just weird. That makes me upset. Um, I think we need to just talk about AI for the rest of the evening. <laughs> uh, so the visitation um, is something that is, that that word visited is, um, is meant to remind us of that covenantal 
promise of a, of a special um, attention given. Uh, and, and here we see the fulfillment of the promise that God has made to Abraham. Um, and you remember when Sarah laughed about the promise because of her age. Um, and that laughter in that moment was a laughter of unbelief. Um, that's ridiculous. But now the laughter is rejoicing and belief. And I think it's a really beautiful transference of themes around the same idea. And the Lord and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in the old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son at his old age. Sarah words, um, Sarah's words play on the name Isaac uh, in a final triumphant manner. God's prepared laughter. Literally, God has prepared laughter for me. Uh, his name. <laughs> uh, and everyone who hears about this will laugh. Uh, so that these words, Hebrew words, are very similar. Uh, with her, the laughter now signals great joy and fulfillment rather than belief, unbelief. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham. What? What is he doing? Laughing. Uh, it's actually a different word um, here, and it, um, and it can mean mocking. Um, uh, or it, there's something pro, pro, provoking here, um, but that once again we move to the dark side of a word that has already been used to describe unbelief, then it moves to joy and fulfillment, and now once again it, it, it moves back to something that's pointing toward tension. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Um, so interesting, Abraham listened to Sarah initially and slept with his maidservant, um, which he shouldn't have done, but he did. And he tried to, and this is a great theme played through the New Testament of a picture of when we do work by the flesh rather than by the spirit. Um, and and the tension that's at play now is that Sarah is the one that told him to do it. Then Sarah is angry about it. Um, and now Sarah is once again um, making demands of, of Abraham. Uh, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. He loves his son. He loves Ishmael. Uh, but God said to Abraham, this is so interesting, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Now, I want you to think about this. Uh, what, did, what, did, what are we told in Ephesians? Before I read this text, what is it we told in Ephesians chapter five in, in regards to relationship between men and women? Now, old school commentators often ignore Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence to the Lord. And they say that's just a general statement. But when it comes to marriage, it's only 
ladies should submit. Wives, submit to your husbands um, as to the Lord. That's, that's the command, right? And you're like, oh, well, that's good. That, as a husband, I don't have to do that. Um, but then it says, husbands, love your wives. Um, and I just want to be really clear. The logic doesn't follow that submission is just the ladies' game. Um, because that would mean that love is only the, the men's game. That, so wives don't have to, to, to love their husbands. Um, that's just the husband's job. It doesn't work that way. What Paul is focusing in on is where there is going to be natural tension between the sexes. Um, but mutual submission and mutual love is at play. And here is a passage where God is telling a man to what? Submit to his wife. To obey his wife. Isn't that interesting? And he's telling, he's telling him to obey her. And this is God's way, I also think, of showing, I wouldn't have to ask you to do this had you guys been in partnership together in a way where you would have been seeking me together on, in the, on the front end. You listened to her, you obeyed her without consulting me before and you end up with a son that is not the promise that I made upon you not that he won't be blessed and not that he won't be a part of God's fulfillment of covenantal fulfillment to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed um, because he he'll go on to say I'm going to make a great nation of Ishmael um, but now he's like Abraham your wife is right and you need to do what she says um, and I just think this is such an interesting um, play, but it speaks to me too of just like the, what I was getting at this morning in regards to the, uh, the, the different ways that we can view the relationship between, um, between husband and wife um, and the dangers of treating the, the text as the wife is somehow, you know, the, the servant who's here to fulfill the man's dreams uh, as if she was taken out of his back. No, she's taken out of his side. Um, and she walks alongside him, and it is together that they fulfill or become the image bearers of God. Um, and so mutual submission, mutual love, um, I think uh, is important. And there, I just want you to say, husbands, there are times where God will make it clear that your wife is being way smarter than you and you should probably listen to her, <laughs> and, and vice versa. <laughs> I, my wife, uh, has, has, and I'm an intense person. There's been times where she's been like, that's stupid, stop doing that, and you need to do this. And I'm grateful for it every time, every time. 26 years, I'm not, I've, I'm, she saved me from a lot of heartache. Um, and, and I've, actually, I don't know if I've ever had to say the same thing to her, but it doesn't matter. The fact is, is that here we have an incident where God is telling the man to obey his wife. Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Listen to her voice. Obey, comply. That is literally the meaning of the Hebrew. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And just keep in mind, Ishmael is about 13 years old at this point, so he's not, it's not a baby she's stuffing it, but he is clearly being worn out by, so there's, this is a, uh, this, this is a kind of hyperbolic statement of like, she's trying to get him under the covering of bushes because he's become weakened by, um, by the trip and running out of food and water. And then she went and sat down opposite of him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot for she said, let him not look, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. Um, it's interesting. Uh, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. And we don't know if it was a prayer, um, but the, the picture is, is that these two people are crying out to God and asking for mercy. Uh, and God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So once again, the God's, God is the God who sees. He is the God who hears and he is the God who provides. Um, and he is a God who stays true to his covenantal promise. Uh, and I think that that is a very profound and beautiful story um, that, yes, God told Abraham to listen to Sarah. Um, and yes, there is a unique covenantal promise on Isaac because Isaac comes as a part of God's miracle, um, his true provision. Uh, and that is that required faith. Um, but that doesn't mean that Ishmael is any less Abraham's son, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't stay true to his promise to make Abraham's offspring great. At that time, Ab Abimelech and Thichol, the commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as if I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. He did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and to the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Once again, a planter, a marker of God's faithfulness, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Chapter 22. And after these things, God tested Abraham. It said to Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering 
on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. There's been much debate around the location of Moriah, but some believe that it is the site where the temple is built in Jerusalem, um, which would be of great significance. There is much in this story that points to um, the sacrifice of Jesus uh, and, I, and, the, and the, the death of Jesus and even the, the surrendering of the only son. So Abraham, and I love that language, take your son, your only son, the son of covenant, the son I have promised you that through this seed, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And now there is a strange thing that is about to happen. And that is, uh, that is this reality that God has put a test upon Abraham. This is a troubling thing. People have, have a hard time uh, dealing with this idea that God would test us, um, but he is God and he can do what he wants and he does test and this is the test. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This is the first mention of the word worship in scripture. Um, and this gives us uh, a really lovely insight into what worship is not. Uh, worship is not the song sung before and after a service. Uh, worship is, is a total surrender of one's life uh, to God. And here it literally means to bow oneself. It's to, to lay face down on the ground before God. It's the recognition that he is God and that you are not. Um, I always have, uh, said that worship begins in submission. It's initiated by the spirit. It's defined by truth and it's expressed in love. And I think that, that this is one of those profound moments where Abraham is giving us insight into what worship is. And it's not, it's, they're not going to sing Kumbaya, it's sacrifice. Um, it's, it's dying, uh, it's dying uh, to yourself. Uh, and Abraham is being asked um, something, uh, I mean, I just can't imagine. Uh, this is what, if you've ever read um, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, the whole focus of that book is, is on the in insanity of this request. Um, that how intense it is, the, like, could any of us even do it? Uh, and so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled um, his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God told him. So, I'm sorry, I already read this. Stay here with the um, donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Um, notice that, that also that statement, we will come back to you. So this is already speaking to Abraham's faith that if this is the son of, of promise, what Hebrews um, uh, insinuates is that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. If he had to kill him, he would have to raise him from the dead because he was basing his life on this promise. Um, he, all he's experienced at the hand of God is God's faithfulness to his word and he is choosing to not doubt that in this moment, even though um, this, this is a, an unbelievable test upon one's spirit. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and, um, oh, excuse me, on the third day, let me see, I just lost my place, sorry. 
And Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took his hand, uh, took his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide. Once again, that theme, the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who provides. Um, for himself, the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of where, which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Um, this, is, uh, this, this binding uh, is something that was done to the sacrifices. Uh, the binding of Isaac is a really fascinating thing. I, we don't know how old Isaac was. Um, the possibility that, that Isaac, I have always read into this text, and this is speculation, is that Isaac would have had to have willingly trusted also in this and trusted his father in this, which I think is a picture of the cross um, that the father and the son, we always think of the son's death, but we forget that the entire Godhead is involved um, in the sacrifice and that there is loss on, um, from all directions. Uh, the father is losing his son. The son it feels forsaken by the father. There is, a, there is separation, there is the anguish of that, the willingness to enter into this, into this thing together. And there seems to be um, a, this Isaac's implicit trust in Abraham's implicit trust in God. Um, and uh, whether or not Isaac um, uh, willingly laid himself down, we can't say for sure. Um, but what we are told is that he was bound by his father and he was laid um, on the altar. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Notice a repetition of the language. Isaac says, father, he says, here I am. Uh, and now, God, the same language. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for, I, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withhold your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I think one of the things that is important for us to take into consideration in this text in closing um, is the concept of both God's testing as well as God's provision. And both of these things can be challenging for us um, as Christians um, because God has made a covenantal promise with Abraham uh, and then the test seems to be in conflict with the, with the covenantal call. But what Abraham is asked to do is to trust in God's covenantal promise. Even when God tests him, are you willing to sacrifice the very object that is the means by which my covenantal promise will be kept? So Abraham is being forced to have faith in things that he can't even begin to understand. 
I have to trust that even if I kill my own son, that somehow God will still fulfill that covenantal promise, which is why Hebrews um, uh, declares that, a that Abraham believed that the Lord would raise him. You know, they, they, this idea of whatever's gonna happen, you're coming back with me one way or another. Um, but the willingness to, um, it may seem like a cruel testing uh, by, by God. And there's, there are many parallels of this to Job um, 1 and 2 as well. Both Job and Abraham, because they're righteous before God because of their faith, are also both God allows them to both go through intense testing. Um, and I think that this is, um, is something that we need to understand that God is, God is not, we, we want God to be about our happiness and God is about our holiness. <laughs> um, and our holiness sometimes requires, I have been through seasons of testing and where God has permitted um, and maybe even at times um, intervened in such a ways, whether it's uh, correction or allowing me to go through incredible seasons of anxiety, all those things are meant to bring me to that place. And the question, am I going to trust the Lord in this or am I gonna walk away? Um, and there has always been on a certain level that the, the freedom to not obey, um, but the choosing um, to obey is uh, what I find is that when we actually allow the Lord to do his work, to do whatever is necessary to make us men and women after his own heart, he'll ask you to die a thousand deaths to accomplish it. Um, and this is why I call it the good death. Uh, and I think that I don't have to try to understand why he asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. What I have to ask the question is, is Lord, what are you asking of me? And what is it that I'm being reluctant to lay down? What is, what is it that I'm being reluctant to die to? Um, and, and I think that that's what's important in this story is that God does test because he loves you and he wants you to grow. Um, and God is also faithful to provide. And I would argue that some people are more comfortable with being tested than they are, from, than they are comfortable receiving because receiving requires a humility to recognize not only is God testing me, um, but I also um, am not capable of providing what is necessary. Um, I, I, I accept the testing and I accept the provision. Uh, and I think that this is the call upon the Christian life is that we have to be willing um, to receive what God wants to give us. And I think that the modern mind um, rejects the testing and the provision. It says, I'm gonna be my own man, my own woman, I'm gonna do what I want. Uh, and I think that this is one of those pictures. Abraham is this incredible picture of that our satisfaction is actually found in our dependence upon God, not our independence from him. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I love this. God's choosing of Abraham is his election. Here is seen clear. It is, I have chosen you so that through you I can bless all people. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you, because of your faithfulness. 
uh, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and your offspring shall have all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to, to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, who is his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Camuel, the father of Aram, Chezed, or Kezed, Hazo, Bildash, Jedlup, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. 